0: 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm just going to read the passage for us. We'll just dive right in. How's that sound? 2 Timothy chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. I charge you, the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe and to rest uh, in your word. God, I pray that you might increase, I might decrease. You leave us Christ. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. So near the end of Paul's life, he's speaking to Timothy. And Timothy is being given something to do, right? Uh, But Paul not only tells Timothy what to do, he also tells Timothy how to do it. And then also why he should do it. So Those are some of the three things we're going to wrestle with this morning. Not only what to do but how to do it and why, why he should do it. So these final words, uh, which really began back in chapter 3, verse 14, last week um, that we looked at. uh, So it's running through chapter 4, verse 8. This is Paul's final exhortation to Timothy. In verse 1, Paul places his charge to Timothy in solemn this really solemn eschatological perspective by reminding him that as he conducts himself under the gaze of God and Christ, and that Christ, not, 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 not those around him, not those who might follow him, whether opponents or faithful believers, but Christ, Christ is the one who will judge him, and that Christ will certainly return. And that's all by way of verse 1. We see this great framing of what happens next, which really is the climax of the letter that we see, at least the, the, uh, the emotional climax of this letter, this, this, this hard charge for Timothy uh, that Paul is giving in his final days where he says, preach the word. Preach the word. It sounds, as I was thinking through this, sounds a lot like Jesus' parting words to Peter, if you remember that. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. And he does it three times, right? Peter, pre- Peter, preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Now, I want to address this right out of the gate because I think there's a, a tendency among a congregation to hear these kinds of words and say, Well, this is not necessarily for me, right? This is a passage for preachers. Now, I'm aware that as I stand here, assigned to preach this passage, to preach this text to you, that that very few in this room are preachers. Uh, But all of you are sermon listeners. All of you. Um, Each and every week, so don't fall into this trap of thinking that, This passage doesn't apply to you. Paul here is talking to Timothy as a preacher. And yet, as personal as this letter may be to Timothy, this is not just a private letter. Uh, It it was a letter that was distributed to all the church. And Paul means for the whole church to hear this. So this is not just a pastor's conference passage uh, or a passage you only hear at ordination services for new elders, which we have a new elder. Maybe we'll preach this passage again uh, from a different angle. I don't know. Uh, but, but this is a whole congregation passage. So that's how I'd like for us to frame it this morning. This is a passage for us all. No matter who you are or what you do in the church, while I say most in this room will not preach the word in its formal sense, you do and you should care about preaching. It's a, it, you know, it affects your life in a very practical way. Each and every week. Right now. Where, uh, you know, uh, where you're not doing anything else. You're not doing anything else right now. But you're sitting and listening to preaching. Uh, so let's consider how this instruction from the Apostle Paul to a preacher, lands on us, a congregation, today. Based on this passage, what should we as a church want in and expect of our pastors and their preaching? The only answer is bold, regular, consistent, faithful, gospel-centered preaching. There is no other option. And so, I'll jump right in. This is my first point, okay? These are going to kind of come pretty quick. Regular gospel-centered preaching grounds the church in truth and keeps it from wandering away and being lost to the world. Verses 3 and 4, where he says, For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You may remember throughout our studies in 1 Timothy a few years ago, and now uh, in 2 Timothy, we've seen this phrase, sound teaching, healthy teaching. Uh, and, and before we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, this, where he talks about that sound doctrine, healthy teaching is in accordance with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Healthy teaching, formed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it produces healthy spiritual lives. Bad teaching produces lives that are unhealthy. It has bad effects. It it, it ruins lives. God, or excuse me, good good as it um, may seem at first, it, it makes miserable in the end. Bad teaching, right? And through preaching his word, God means to rescue people from their wandering off into the cancers of unhealthy teachings. So have you ever thought about this expression expression that Paul uses here, itching ears? Ears are designed to let sound in to them, right? Let sound into the mind, into the heart. But those who are not enduring healthy teaching, which goes into the ears and instructs and convicts, they want their ears, what? To be tickled. Just a light touch of the lobe. Just a pleasant scratch of the ear, right? Uh, basically, it's in essence saying, please, no, no challenging words uh, down into the ears. Just, just a light tickle. And then, they, what, what the text calls us to, what it says they will do, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And so, you know, what does this look like today? It's far too easy to curate feeds for ourselves to suit uh, our own passions. You know, verse 3 is remarkably relevant for today. Uh, I'm not even entirely sure what it looked like 2,000 years ago to accumulate for yourselves teachers. Obviously, it means just those who you spend time listening to. But I could think about, you know, 100 years ago, um, even people, you know, books were being printed, and so you could buy someone's books, or you could uh, subscribe to their periodicals, and you could get them delivered to your home. That was even 100 years ago. Today... How do we accumulate teachers that stroke our own sinful passions rather than communicate to us God's passions? Well, it's you know uh, you click you click follow or you subscribe to this podcast. You subscribe to you know there, there's a, an appeal. Subscribe to our, our YouTube channel. Read the book. Listen to uh, Audible. Just. Hit the play while you drive, while you clean, whatever it is that you may do while you exercise, run. Come to this super, uh, you know, this call. Come to this super practical conference, and as you're at this conference, you hear this this speaker speak, and now you begin to start following this or that speaker. Um, we should all be asking the question, then, this is super practical, I think, for where we are in our culture, we should all be asking the question, who is in our ear? This is why this passage is totally applicable to the church today. Yes, it's a passage to a preacher, but there is something here for all of us. Who is in our ear? If you audit your feeds, your your podcast, your your library, your, your apps, what teachers... Have you accumulated for yourselves? And what will be the long-term effect of their voice on, on you over time? Do you expose yourself to words that will pierce your ears with truth? Or, or do you expose yourself to words that will simply tickle your ears and allow you to wander off into mist? Do, do you challenge Uh, Do do they challenge your sinful passions or do they suit them? And let me be clear. This is not some sermon to demonize this right here, okay? Our screens can be used for good. You know, these can be great instruments for accessing truth. But notice the process here that we see in verses 3 and 4. 1. They grow weary with healthy teaching. And then they accumulate for themselves new teachers that fit their emerging passions. And then, verse 4, they turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see what's happening here? At one point, they were listening. And then they stopped. And so this stark contrast here is between truth on the one hand, and myths on the other. Healthy teaching versus unhealthy teaching. But what's so subtle is that this is a journey that has taken one small step at a time. The the move from truth uh, to myths is really so informal. It's so conversational. It's so unthreatening. It's so easy. And that's the surprising thing We've seen about the false teachings here that we've seen in Second in Timothy. You know, Second Timothy two sixteen, Peter, Peter uh, excuse me, Paul calls it uh, uh, irreverent babble. Chapter two, verse twenty three, he calls it foolish, ignorant controversies. and, and are we not surrounded today? by babble and foolish, arrogant controversies. But we need to ask, who are these people Paul is talking about in verses 3 and 4? Are these people out there in the world, or are these people in here, in the church? And one clue is the word for at the beginning of verse 3. Paul tells Timothy, verse 2, preach the word. I think implied there is uh, there to the church that that's in the context of corporate worships, what we're doing right now. He says, for he says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. In other words, Timothy, people in your church right now, they receive the healthy teaching right now. But they may not always. They may not endure. And and that's what it would mean to turn away. There's another clue as to to who who, who this passage is talking about. They're turning away. They were there. They were in the church. They're in the room right now with us. Not just in Timothy's day but with us right now. And so, this is super relevant to us. You know, we live in an area that's fairly transient. We see a lot of new people come in. People get jobs, they move out. People, you know, move across town and it's no longer, like, viable for them to drive 40 minutes to come to church here, so they begin to go to another church. This is super applicable to to you. That the reality is you may not always be here. You may go somewhere else. And so who you listen to, who you spend time sitting under matters. What they're teaching matters. And so Paul has a plan to keep that wandering from happening. Paul charges Timothy Timothy, to preach the word. Don't let up. Be vigilant. Don't coast. Preaching today keeps people saved tomorrow. Don't go soft on your preaching, Timothy. Don't go soft on your preaching, Capshaw. So first, gospel-centered preaching week in, week out. Faithful preaching, it keeps us from slowly sliding into and being lost to the world. So every one of us has a responsibility to accumulate for ourselves faithful Christ-exalting voices to faithfully feed us. And I'll just say, I don't even have this in my notes, we should be grateful that God has given this church faithful men who are able to teach. Who have a real passion for opening the Bible, explaining, exposing the truth of the Scriptures, and more importantly, pointing you to Jesus Christ. Week in, week out. May it forever be that way. And this is where church, faith family... You demand this. Don't ever let this slip away. But we also need preachers to tell us what God has to say and not just what we want to hear. We need preachers to tell us what God has to say and not just what we want to hear. So so preach the word. So let's ask. What does it mean to preach, and what does Paul mean by the word? What, is, what does it mean to preach? Well, the word for preach here, in the Greek, if you take it, translate it, it actually means to herald. Uh, heralds were the people of old who would go into, they were usually commissioned by the king, and they would go into their, out into the land, They would go into the market squares. uh, They would go uh, into the town squares, wherever that may be, the village centers. uh, And they would say things like, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye!" right? Uh, And they would loudly and clearly proclaim the news of the day to the townspeople. Heralds were not philosophers. They were not teachers. Heralds were just telling people what had already happened or what was being reported by the king. The fact that the New Testament chooses the usage of this word is simply remarkable, honestly. In other words, the essence of Christian preaching is not to tell people what to do or how they should live. Of course, as we teach the Bible, we will inevitably be taught how, how to live. But the essence of Christian preaching is not to tell people what to do, but what has already been done. That's the essence of Christian preaching. So we are to preach or to herald the Word. But what does Paul mean by the Word? Well, our passage this morning is followed up, uh, followed up by what we heard Pastor John remind us of last week verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3, where Paul mentions the sacred writings, the scriptures, where all the words of scripture is theonoustos, breathed out by God. Then there is no break. By the way, these chapter verses and numbers, they were put in afterwards. Paul didn't write them in. He didn't intend a break here to happen. But here we have a A break, but there is no break. It goes right into verses 1 and 2, this command, preach the word. So we have scripture, the sacred writings, which Paul says are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not saying preach the Old Testament apart from the coming of Christ, nor is he saying preach Christ from the, uh, preach Christ apart from the written scriptures. It's not either or. All the scriptures testify to Jesus Christ. So we preach the gospel from the scriptures. We preach the word, John chapter 1. Don't make me have to do it. Those of you who are new here, I, I love to close in benediction, the congregation in... John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. And the gospel is often referred to in the New Testament as the Word of God in the Scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament are the Word of God. So we preach the Word, God's Word, His Son, His gospel, His revelation. We preach the Word, not our opinions... Now, our stories, although we will tell stories, we should still tell stories that help illuminate the truths of Scripture. But we're not driven by trends. We're not driven by politics. We don't preach life hacks or we don't preach pop psychology or seeing God in the summer flicks. We preach God's Word in Christ in the Gospel. From the scriptures. In other words, preacher, tell us what God has to say, which is—I'll tell you—is a lot of hard work. Okay, and again, I'm super, super grateful for people like Pastor John who do this week in and week out. It's a tremendous amount of work, and it is far easier to preach uh, what seems cool and trendy and well received, and it's just—you know—it just. You know, it just whatever your preference is to talk about. It's much easier to do that than it is to study the scriptures, rightly divide the word of truth, and to communicate it to the congregation. That's It's a whole lot of work. So preaching your opinions and stories and trends and politics and life hacks and pop psychology, again, far easier than preaching God's word. The next thing that Paul says after a preach the word is be ready in season and out of season. Faithful preaching is not just hard work. It's not, it's not something that, that you just do. It's, it's really a lifestyle. It's a lifelong project. There's a sense in which all your life has to this point. It goes into every sermon that you bring to God's people. We, we see this. Pastor John is so good at telling stories of his family and illustrating the truths of what we see in the Scriptures. And it's a lifetime, usually a lifetime's worth of stories that, that help us, rein us in to the realities of the Scriptures. And so there will be times when it's in season, although I'm not really sure when that was or if we've ever really been in season, and at times when we're out of season, but I'll tell you, right now it's out of season. The message of the Bible is out of season in our culture. And it seems like uh, every year, people who have classically been connected to broader evangelicalism seem to drift far uh, from this perspective that, that Paul is presenting here. Now, Well, I can't say that I'm totally surprised because this particular pastor, pastor, has kind of been at it for a number of years now. Uh, This past week, as I'm preparing to 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 preach this passage, this call from Paul to Timothy to preach the word, um, Pastor uh, Andy Stanley tweeted this statement. I don't know if it's a yeah, okay. The Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And while this statement might sound innocent enough and even spiritual in nature, in reality, this is an attempt to defend the faith while detaching ourselves from the scriptures. Again, the scriptures aren't in season. This is not a a new form of contemporary apologetics. This is old school questioning. Did God really say? It's the same voice Eve heard in the garden. It's the same voice we hear today in contemporary culture. It's nothing new. This definitely is not what Paul is advocating. Paul believed, we believe, we know Jesus Christ because God has chosen to reveal himself to us in his special revelation. The Bible is not just a collection of 66 ancient documents. It's a story about God and what he's doing to reconcile Man back to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus even says, all the scriptures are about me. All of them. So these 66 ancient documents, they testify to Jesus Christ. They teach us of who he is. We can't know Jesus apart from this word. So Paul is saying, preach the full counsel of the word of God. Then Paul gives three words for what kinds of voices Timothy should have in his preaching. Look at that uh, here with me. He says to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and and exhort. It means uh, communicating all that the Scriptures includes, which is doctrine, instruction, Correction, encouragement. And there's really two voices that he's advocating for. One to correct and one to encourage. One stings, one inspires. One brings brokenness. It confronts us in our self-perceived righteousness where we think we got this thing figured out, this life. But we really don't. The other displays the beauty of grace. This is the law gospel paradigm that you hear us talk about quite a bit. The law reveals to us our need for a savior. But it can't save us. It it can't save us. It only shows us that we're in trouble. And that we need a rescuer. Gospel reveals to us that God, what God has made, that He's made a way of redemption for us through His sovereign grace and mercy, ultimately in Jesus Christ, in His life, death, and resurrection. And then notice what Paul says as he closes this exhortation for Timothy, when he says, with complete patience and teaching. All of this is to be done patiently, displaying winsome grace, complete patience, not no patience, and not a little patience, but complete patience and teaching. I don't know about you, but I am hard-headed. I need a patient teacher. I am... A slow learner. Do you remember where we saw the words teaching and patience together in this letter? The end of chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul talks about the Lord's servant. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to, uh, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentle patience. Man, this, this makes me think about the patience of God towards us. You know, for those of us who've blown it this past week, I fall in this category. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against your family. You've sinned against another fellow covenant member of Capshaw. Another brother or sister in the faith. Jesus is so kind and patient with you. He doesn't lash out in anger or grow in bitterness. Jesus doesn't turn to the Father and say, look at that idiot. He doesn't then turn to the heavenly host and malign your character. Instead, he's patient with you. In the same kind of way, this is what Paul is saying this is the way pastors and elders are to preach the word with complete patience. The essential point then in verse five is Timothy, endure. Don't go soft on your preaching. Don't let up. Keep preaching and teaching in season and out of season, out of season with patience. Challenge and cheer. Encourage. Tell them what God has to say. Open to the next passage and keep going when there's resistance. But what was Paul's source of motivation to live this way? The answer is gospel hope. Paul's desire to be faithful was shaped by his understanding of the gospel. His lifelong commitment towards faithfulness, it flowed from this continual reflection on the gospel. What God has already done and the hope of what he will do in the future. And really, this is the final thought that I want to leave us with this morning. That the past work of the cross of Christ and the future hope of his consummated kingdom, it gives us endurance. And it encourages us in our faithfulness today. So looking at the past, what Christ has done, looking at what He will do in the future, that is what encourages us and motivates us towards faithfulness today. The single greatest factor of motivation for faithfulness in your life is not, uh, is not us. Up here, week in, week out, simply telling you what to do. Here are three things for a better marriage. Here are three things for a, a, a better, a, you know, a better twenty twenty-two. How to make more money and those kind of things. It's our job to remind you of what has been done, and then we live in light of this reality, where the imperatives of Scripture the things we are called to do, they flow for the indicatives of Scripture, what has been done. It's never the other way around. This is why our promise here is to feed you Christ week in and week out, every single week, because the reality is preaching graceless law does not motivate you to faithfulness. Me standing up here, screaming, telling you, do this, do that. Pastor John, he screams all the time, doesn't he? Telling you what to do. No. Our commitment is to patiently feed you Christ. Paul believed this, and it motivated him to faithfulness. And gospel hope and encouragement is always just looking back. There's also an element of it looking forward. This is what Paul is doing as he closes this section of his letter. In the end, he knew there was a reward for living faithfully in this life. And what is this reward that he talks about? He describes it in the final verses. We need pastors. He will keep pointing us to this reward. This is verses 6 through 8. Another reason Paul gives for carrying on his mighty charge to Timothy, preach the word, is his own personal example of endurance in gospel in the gospel enterprise. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul is passing the baton, Of faithful preaching, knowing that he is nearing the end of his earthly race. Verse 8: Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is this reward? What is this crown of righteousness? I think it's something like this. The reward is not some sort of material possession. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, I got another jewel in my crown. Right? I don't think it's a physical crown that we take and put on. The reward is God. It's access to God. We get access to God and we receive approval from Him, affirmation from the Father. You see, you, we were created for this type of affirmation. We were created for this type of access to God. We, we were made for God's affirmation. We were created to, to, to live and to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We we were made to have God say to us, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. We were made for this. Paul knew that dying would mean gaining this. He talks about this, the same thing in the book of Philippians, where he talks about dying is gaining The reality is he's already had the righteousness of Christ. He's already been justified by the Father. He's been declared not guilty in court, essentially. He's been waging war on the remaining sins in his life. He's experiencing the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, the crown of righteousness is the completed work of his sanctification. He's pointing us to the future glorification when there will be no more pain. No more sickness, no more heartaches, no more hardships in this world. This is the hope Paul has. This hope drives him to faithfulness and this is the same hope he's showing Timothy. And by way of conclusion, as our deacons begin to... Prepare the table for us for communion. The way this passage closes, it makes me think about a poem that uh, pastor and author John Piper wrote about eight years ago. It's a poem that that details several different aspects and season of a faithful Christian's life. And I'm always super moved by this whenever I see the produced video. That's that that Desiring God released uh, with this poem. Because when they initially released the the poem, they did so by using different voices uh, of narration from several prominent pastors and theologians. Many voices I'm certain you would recognize uh, if you were to hear it. Well, one of the voices is... um, Uh, a theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul, a man that God has used massively in my life. Uh, Dr. Sproul died in 2017 from COPD, and uh, he battled that for many years. And this poem was written right about, or they released it right about that time, uh, but they were able to capture him reading this poem shortly before he died. And as he narrates this poem, you can hear the voice of a tired 76-year-old man who has given his life to faithful preaching, a faithful proclamation of the Word of God. You can hear the struggle for him to catch his breath. And every time I hear his voice narrate the final words of the poem, I'm I'm moved. I mean, I was in the car yesterday. I sent a text message to Sarah because I just listened to it. I mean... I'm moved to deep tears. It's kind of embarrassing, but this is how the poem ends. This is the end of the faithful Christian's life, as Piper does it. But he says See him worshiping, watch the sinner sing, spared the burning flood only by the blood. See him on the shore, whence this ocean store. From your God above, thimble full of love, see him now asleep, watch the helpless reap. But no credit take, justice as when he awake. See him nearing death, listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper gain. As we now go to the table, may the Lord produce in us all a deep sense of joy in the gospel. A profound grasp of the past work of Christ. And an overwhelming comfort and longing for what he will do for us in the future. May we all in our final whisper of breath gain. And hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And may this motivate our faithfulness to preach the word, to accumulate for ourselves people who are not ashamed to preach the word, to have a high standard of the types of pastors we choose to sit under. May this hope motivate us to fulfill the work of an evangelist. This is for all of us. May it motivate us to finish well. Listen, in communion, I'm going to pray in just a second. And they will begin to pass out the elements. But when we approach the Lord's table, it's not just something we remember in the past. This is God's grace He's showing us now. We, we get to see it on display and be reminded anew of what God has already done for us. Jesus paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. This is not Jesus being re-sacrificed over and over and over again. This is us looking back at what has already happened. But it's also, there's an appeal, and we'll read this in a moment, there's an appeal for looking to the future. This is to encourage those who are in the faith, to stir the faith of those who are already in the faith, but it is also to... Hopefully, awaken the faith of those who've never believed. As we look forward to the one, to the day when we, as a family, this family will be much larger, and we'll be sitting at a table with people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and we'll be breaking bread together, and we'll be worshiping the King the one who's made all this possible. And so may communion stir us to faith. May it stir us to faithfulness. May it motivate us to finish well. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We thank you, Father, for your kindness and grace and mercy that you show us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the table, the elements that we are about to receive. We recognize that they are good gifts from you, and you use them, one, to stir our faith. And God, we also pray that you would use it to awaken the faith of those who observe us as a faith family breaking bread together. Those who were once enemies of yours, now reconciled and adopted beloved sons and daughters. And we share a place at the table together. And we look at Christ who paid the penalty for our sins, died a death in our place that we deserve to die, and he conquered an enemy that we could not conquer ourselves. God, we thank you for the promise of your word that if we repent of our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we pray that as we take communion today that you would use it to stir us to love you would stir us to joy you would stir us to treasure Jesus Christ Lord we ask all that in Christ's name Amen The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he says he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is my, this is my blood, uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And aren't we looking forward to that day? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your provision for us in our life. We thank you for the provision you made for us in giving us your special revelation, the word of Christ, that reveals Christ to us, that lets us see what you have done throughout redemptive history to make a way for us to have access to you. And God, we look forward to the day when you will consummate your kingdom and we will all be sitting at a table together, breaking bread. Saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. God, we long for that day. We pray that you continue to stir us, awaken our faith so that we can be faithful and live in light of your faithfulness. Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen.